I V M. Hello, hello, we're Team Splainer. Welcome to an all new episode of Press Decode, a weekly podcast where we take Splainer's mission to declutter the news one step further. Check out our newsletter for more stories and follow us at Splainer Inn to keep up with all the fun things we plan for our Splainer fam. So sit back, relax, and don't let the news give you the blues. I'm Vagda, your host for the day, and I have with me Sarah and Prafula. As always, we have three segments for you. In our big story, we're taking a look at Russia's alleged war crimes in Bucha. For the Food for Thought segment, we're talking about women's cricket in India. And in our final segment, we'll be roasting and toasting our fave and least fave items. Okay, now on to our big story for the week. Just giving you a trigger warning, this segment has some graphic descriptions of violence. So Russia retreated from the northern areas of Ukraine over the last weekend. After being rather unsuccessful in its attempt to take over Kyiv, they're now planning to concentrate on the eastern areas of Ukraine, of the Donbas, which includes regions controlled by Russian-backed separatists. Now, as Russian forces withdrew from the north, Ukraine found evidence of gross torture done to civilians in the region. They found bodies of more than 400 civilians. The most appalling accounts come from Bucha, which is a city near Kyiv. Ukrainian officials said that the scenes there looked like those from a horror movie. Visuals from Bucha show civilians lying dead in streets, many face down with their hands tied at the back, some shot at close range, some shot in the mouth, in the head, others have their legs tied, mass graves have been found. Satellite photos show a 45-foot-long trench in the grounds of a church in Bucha. In another town, the Associated Press reported how Russian troops killed the town's mayor, her husband, her son, and threw their bodies into a pit. The mayor's husband had his hands behind his back and a piece of plastic wrapped around his eyes like a blindfold. That's not all. Ukrainian officials also alleged that Russian soldiers in the area raped women and buried their bodies. The Human Rights Watch also confirmed incidents of rape too. Ukrainian President Zelensky described the Russian forces as murderers, torturers, and rapists who were committing genocide in the country. Russia has obviously denied it had any role to play in the killing of civilians, claiming that they were placed after Russian forces left to give Russia a bad name. But a New York Times investigation of satellite images shows that the bodies in Bucha had been lying in the street for weeks. The US and many European countries have called Putin personally a war criminal and have newly called for investigation into war crimes committed by Russian forces in Ukraine. But before we get into how these demands may be met, can we first get one major confusion out of the way? And that is, what are war crimes? You're literally at war with guns and tanks and missiles. And yet there are some things you just cannot do. So what's that? You know, before we get into war crimes, we need to take a step back and look at what the rules of war are. Uh, Because war is brutal and wasteful and like the song says, good for nothing. And yet there is a line we are willing to draw in the sand. Formerly known as the international humanitarian law, these rules aim to maintain some humanity in armed conflicts, saving lives and reducing suffering. These are part of the Geneva Convention, which was first instated in the 19th century. And while the convention has been amended over and over the years, the first one primarily focused on requiring warring armies to take care of the sick and wounded on the battlefield instead of leaving them to die or finishing them off, regardless of which side of the war they were on. And since then, it's been ratified by 196 states. 
And in addition to caring for the sick and wounded, the rules of war also state that civilians should never be harmed. Prisoners of war should be treated with dignity and not be tortured and uh, also restricts the kind of weapons that each side can use. For example, dumb bombs, um, chemical and bio weapons, nerve agents, even some sophisticated weaponry in today's day needs to be aligned with these rules because these weapons cannot tell the difference between who is a civilian and who is a military person. And if you violate these rules, that is when you are committing a war crime. The International Criminal Court has a specific definition for genocide, war crimes, crimes against humanity and crimes of aggression, respectively. So is what Russia doing a war crime? So as you've said, right, one of the fundamental principles of the laws of war is that civilians should not be targeted purposely at least. Hmm. And the fact that there have been attacks on schools and a maternity ward in Kiev and a theater in Mariupol qualify as violations to those laws. And to make matters more dire, we have the case of Bucha as Wagner described. So these are clearly atrocities under international humanitarian law. So yeah. So technically, yes, these are war crimes, but it's also where the gray area starts, right? Either a national government or the UN Security Council can ask the court to investigate certain cases. Uh, Pertaining to this invasion, 39 national governments have moved the court to investigate Russia's crimes right now. I mean, yeah, sure, moving the court is one step, but what is the system of redressal and Mm -hmm. how likely is it that someone like Putin can be held responsible? Okay, so I'm going to try and break this up and deal with three main institutions that even have the slightest chance of taking action. To begin with, in 2002, the Rome Statute gave birth to something called the International Criminal Court or ICC, which you had mentioned earlier. It is located in The Hague and operates independently. It's the permanent modern successor to the Nuremberg, which prosecuted key Nazi leaders in 1945. 123 countries of the world are party to this treaty of the ICC, but a whopping 42 are not. And this includes notable exceptions like Russia, the US, India, and even Ukraine. And what's interesting is that Russia, like the US, is not a signatory to the treaty that it was part of creating. For the court, I mean. Uh, But it is not a member in the sense that it signed the treaty when the court was created, but it is now not a member. It pulled its membership out in 2016 because this was the same year when the court published an unfavorable verdict uh, about its actions uh, around Crimea and also began an investigation into uh, its actions because it's uh, backed separatists in Georgia in 2008. Wow, that makes sense. Of course it did. I mean, the futility of international organizations is an entire podcast on its own. But here's holding out some hope. Interestingly, though, I did not know this. The ICC tries people, not countries, and focuses on those who hold the most responsibilities. So leaders and officials that they can particularly pin the blame on. Mm -hmm. Now, the ICC has said it does see evidence of war crime and it will conduct trials of war crimes in Ukraine right from 2013 to the present. This is because, like you mentioned, Russia first entered Crimea, which has been part of Ukraine, in 2014. Now, this new referral seems to put all potential war crimes together. But this is still the infant stages of an investigation, if at all. Uh, And while this is a criminal code that deals with individuals, it is highly unlikely that like anybody would actually arrest and transfer Putin to the Hague for trial. I mean, they can't do it. They can't take him, extricate him from Russia. But even if he were to travel, I don't see this happening. 
Next, the second organization is the ICJ or the International Court of Justice, which is also at The Hague and is actually the highest UN court. However, it deals with countries, not individuals, unlike the ICC. But more importantly, its decisions are actually implementable, unlike again the ICC. But they're implemented by the UN Security Council, of which Russia is a permanent member and thus holds a critical veto power, allowing it to essentially overturn any decision that's not in its favor. So with the ICC, they could exit. Here, they can veto. The last is the European Court of Human Rights. And actually, a lot of uh, the articles that I read pinned most of their hope on European courts as opposed to entire international courts. But here as well, this is an international court that was created by the Council of Europe and handles cases against both individuals and groups as well as countries. But the problem here for one is that Russia has a track record of only spotty compliance. And to add to it, in mid-March, Russia was expelled from the Council of Europe itself. So there goes that. Legal experts also contend that an international treaty or the United Nations, because I mean, the first three options don't seem extremely likely, could possibly create a separate tribunal only to investigate the Russian invasion, as was the case of Yugoslavia and Rwanda. So I guess that could happen. And, you know, now that that's out of the way, let's look at how the court prosecutes these so-called war crimes, right? If at all, that is. Uh, As is with any investigation, there is a burden of proof and due process that is supposed to be followed and played out. Uh, So the court will look at satellite images and listen to witness testimonies, etc. And it is going to be a long process. It's going to take years. Leaders have been prosecuted before, but a leader, because uh, Liberian president Charles Taylor is, I think, the only person who actually has been sentenced. He was sentenced to 50 years. Others who were charged, like Yugoslav leader Slobodan Milosevic and uh, Libyan leader Gaddafi, died during and before their trials, respectively. So international law is arduous and long drawn. But the burning question is, will Putin ever be charged or ever be put on trial? I suppose we just wait and watch. (laughs) I think that's the more hopeful note to end on because I was going to say something totally not hopeful. So on that note, we come to the end of our first segment. We'll be right back after a short break. You're listening to Press Decode on the IBM Podcast Network. Hello and welcome back to Press Decode on the IBM Podcasts Network. We're Team Splainer and in today's Food for Thought, we're heading to the cricketing world. As you might have heard, the BCCI has expressed its intention to launch an Indian Premier League tournament for women. The first tournament is likely to be held as early as in 2023. That's like now. (laughs) Now, it'll have about six teams in its uh, inaugural season. And the men's team are likely to be given the first right of refusal to purchase these teams. And about four of them are interested. So, yay. It's not the first Premier League in the women's cricket. Australia already has a very, very popular women's Big Bash League, which has eight teams and who play 59 matches. New Zealand has the Super Smash Women and England has the Kia Super League, where Indian players have also played Smriti Mandana and Harman Preet Kaur. Pakistan's also launching a similar league next year. I just want to say, I mean, we need to call it the Big Bash League or Super Smash Women. It can't be women's IPL. I will personally be hurt if it's not called something as cool as that. Why don't you send some options to BCC? I have until 2023. Correct. This is what I'm going to do now. Yes. Okay, cool. 
Now, experts agree widely that India is largely an untapped market for women's cricket. And now I can see why. Because there are literally not enough matches that they play. Between 2006 and 2016, the number of one-day international matches played by Indian women was just 95. That is 32% of the matches played by men. Men played 300 matches. And that's not even the half of it. Thanks for doing the math. (laughs) Now, we have obviously a ridiculous wage gap. When I say ridiculous, I am... It is... I, I just... I mean ridiculous. And I would have never guessed this, but senior women players are paid the salary of an under 19 male player. What the hell? The highest category pay slab for women, that is category A player, is 50 lakh rupees. And that is half of what the lowest category in men gets paid. The highest category for men, category A+, gets paid 7 crore rupees. Which is the category that does not exist for women, by the way. Yeah, it doesn't exist. (laughs) There are no A+, players, thank you. (laughs) But you know what makes even less sense? The fact that all of this happens when both men and women are overseen by the same BCCI. Until 2006, women's cricket was overseen by a fully independent Women's Cricket Association of India. And you would expect, oh, they didn't have money or they didn't have source or they didn't have, you know, resources. Now, they're literally with the BCCI. What is the point of getting absorbed into BCCI if you're going to get this? Half of what the lowest category player in men's team gets. So despite Vagda's shock, my cynical self is actually prepared for most of this. Yeah, I, yeah. No yeah. one knows you're, 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 how old are you? You're 40. <laughs> 22. That's what you are. Oh, thank you. But I mean, yeah, limited opportunities, insane wage gaps. As a woman, we know these things to be far too real. But somehow while researching for this story, two particular things stood out to me and they were the real kickers. They were even beyond. That's what actually shocked me. So I don't know what your takes are. One was pointed out by Vinayak Mohanrangan in The Scroll, where he notes the painfully obvious exclusion of the women's team on social media. On the one hand, every men's team match and achievement is marked by a flood of tweets and posts and the official hand and like, you know, politicians, everybody is celebrating. On the other hand, the official handle barely even acknowledges international matches played by the women, let alone celebrate them. And there is just one media manager for the team, unlike other countries, which have an entire in-house team. Social media is literally the cheapest way to show support. And even that, the BCCI falters on. And that was a real shocker to me. I mean, see, it goes beyond just being a petty thing to get stuck on for me. It's, it's, it's reflective of the larger stepchild treatment meted out to the women's team. And I was also interested to know that there was very real consequences. I quote, a good social media presence is important for the board to promote the sport, for players to reach fans and potential sponsors, and for sponsors who attach themselves to women's sport, which offers fast-growing commercial opportunities world over. So, like, and with less of a push than the BCCI can then use, once again, use the cyclic argument of, hey, but no one watches women playing cricket. No one supports it. No one puts money in it. While they themselves are not asked to even showcase the women's team on social media. The second kicker goes beyond the awful start that Vagda pointed out. The one about the number of international fixtures for women, which is about 32%, you said? Yeah. Yeah. The pandemic just made all the difference all the more glaring. In 2020, while the board worked overtime to stage the IPL and push through for the men's tour of Australia, 
it pulled the women's series in england without a second though and this is despite the english board promising to arrange proper covid protocols etc it did something similar in sri lanka where they had a problem with quarantine requirements and they never actually they promised a lot but never actually materialized any series against west indies and south africa so eventually when the women's team was up for the world cup it was after a long period of absolutely no international cricket experience a former player of the team explains precisely why this is a problem if the girls are not playing they will tend to lose form and momentum it's not easy to just walk out and perform i mean i think so too yeah eventually when australia new zealand england and west indies were back on the field india crashed out after losing four out of seven matches and didn't even make it to the semi finals which was once again used to fuel the hey not enough players in the country meet international standards so why should we expend resources see the timing isn't the same but i think the irony was that in the peak of the second wave the bcci pushed really hard for the disastrous ipl which had to be cut short considering it was being played in the capital where things were straight up apocalyptic yet mm. within just a couple months the men returned and took their matches to the gulf and went on with their lives where is the women kept waiting one second did you say gulf i'm malu of course i said gulf <laughs> push it in <laughs> but yes they went to the bye and they played their matches and were happy happy yeah that's the thing with our sports bodies no they're infamous for being nonchalant about sports with that aren't men's international cricket like look at the ranji trophy it's a prestige tournament and it is still held in very high regard but how much coverage do we get compared to the ipl right and i don't know if it's a cricket problem or an india only problem because australia new zealand and england have like you said their own sports leagues and they're massively popular these three teams are really great at what they do from club levels to international tournaments but you know so is the indian team we are ranked internationally fourth in both odi and t20 rankings the only difference is that these countries have obviously put in much more money in their women's teams than we have but here's the kicker again despite being seven time world champions uh, there is still a significant wage gap between the men and women in the australian teams uh, the good news i guess is that the association did finally take notice and is now increasing the base pay for the women but if you look at other sports it's a whole other story take tennis for example uh, serena williams is arguably the best the greatest tennis player of all time and this is no disrespect meant to rafa or raj but they've never won their 23rd grand slam while pregnant <gasps> yes it is yes that's the point right women will play while pregnant they'll play while sick and then they still don't get equal pay and when they finally advocated for and won equal pay uh, this certain player that i really dislike I'm talking about Novak but he said that he appreciated the work that women put in but men deserve to be paid more because they attracted more viewers and the rest of his uh, statement uh, you know how people will say oh you know I'm not racist I have so and so friends he said I support women because I have a wife I I've, I've had a woman a female coach I have uh, played with women so they're a big part of my life <laughs> oh played with women wow no back women Oh. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Women kind of, I'm so thankful. I know it infuriated me. I went back to look at what he said because this was like 6 years ago and I'm still so infuriated by what he said. 
But it's the same argument that is given to the US women's soccer team also. The men apparently get better ratings. This is despite the fact that women have won four World Cup titles, four Olympic gold medals, and eight gold cups in the uh, Central American and Caribbean Federation, which is way more than the men because their best performances have been reaching semifinals. My God. Yeah. And it's the same thing with basketball. Players in the WNBA and the NCAA, which is the college association, uh, have long complained about the disparity in pay, the kind of treatment they receive. So WNBA players are paid a fraction of their NBA counterparts, same like our cricket team. And uh, opposite to our women's cricket team, they keep playing continuous tournaments because they cannot survive on their league salaries. So once the tournament is done, they then go to Russia or China to play another set of tournaments. And then they come back to play the tournament in the US. And they also pay for their own airfare. Yeah, so the college players also have only started been get, getting better accommodation equipment, even better food, because the last year they complained on social media, created a ruckus, because they were getting literally peanuts compared to the men. And now they have started. Oh, oh, but peanuts were what Ravi Shastri said in 2017, that the highest paid uh, right. men's oh, yeah. category at that time used to get two crores. And according to him, that it's was peanuts. peanuts. Yeah, you can see we all care very deeply about the way. No, I, I, I really thought that this this segment is going to be about like women's cricket, but it's just become about like wage gap. The thing is, I cannot be objective about sports, you guys. It's just, it infuriates me so much because people are like, oh, who watch, uh, watches women's sports? I'm like, there are so many people who do. What do you mean? But coming to that point, last March, a paper summarizing 30 years of sports broadcasting found that over 80% of telecasts ignore women's sports entirely, even while they are being played in season. On the other hand, the big three, that is men's basketball, baseball and football, are constantly advertised and mentioned even in their off-season, which is again, it's just terrible. Things are looking up because the WNBA saw like a 70% increase in 2020 in viewership and that has been steadily rising. Uh, this year's NCAA final for the women was the most watched finals game in two decades with 5.9 million viewers. But there will always be women, there will always be people who say, oh, but girls don't play very well. And that, again, just... But apparently a lot of, like, uh, we had a record viewing in Women's World Cup, no? When yeah. India was playing? When, in the Women's World Cup, mm. some 105 Five. million viewers... Yeah tuned in to watch so hopefully things are looking up slowly and on that note we come to the end of our second segment we'll be back after a short break you're listening to press record on the ibm podcast network Welcome back to Press Decode on the IBM Podcasts Network. It's time for our final segment this week, Roast or Toast, and Sarah is back <laughs> to her form. Yes, I'm finally back home. Yes, yes. I miss my cynical abode of least fave items. It's been a while. Anyway, this one's just plain unnecessary and gross. Turns out the latest trend in the food and beverage industry of all places is called poop swoop. <laughs> yep. Yuck. Thank you. Appropriate reaction. And it is exactly what you would imagine. Turns out, restaurants across the world are really embracing serving a poop swoop of everything. Right from chicken liver mousse to chocolate icing to whipped ricotta. 
they basically made to look like the poop emoji and it's a raving hit i mean for as gen z as i'm made to be on this pod i fail to understand why we have this inherent need to keep creating trends and such ridiculous ones of all things and the funniest part about this story though is that the creator of the piping style simply called it swirlies <laughs> and is now fairly amused by this transition to shit quite literally. exactly that's what i thought i mean mcdonald's has been doing that mcswirl for ages is the same thing exactly i mean this quote i think cracked me up the most i think we paved the way to allow people to make food that looks like poop emojis and not feel bad about it he's just like reluctantly embracing it. Mm, I see. So I'm back with a fave. Last Friday afternoon, I was lying horizontal happily reading the most delightful thing in the Mel magazine, a history of the comb over. What's the comb over? Yes, that despairing effort of men to hide their balding heads chronicling the likely invention or maybe not uh, of the comb over by Julius Caesar. to king charles 9 who sported a comb over not to conceal his hair loss but to accentuate it you must <laughs> check it out there are images uh then there are pictures of napoleon sporting a front to back comb over as opposed to the usual side to talking about innovation there was a strange patent from 1977 granted to a father son duo who claimed that they invented this new technique involving not just the comb as in hair over from one side but from both sides and the back so it's like a pancake sitting on top like a folded thing sitting on your head and there are scientific images to go with it obviously What? it's a patent yes oh aha uh-huh, of course <laughs> and there's a lot a lot more so if you want to have some fun the link is in the description that is so delightful i can't wait to see the pictures uh, my fave item for this week is uh, that in 1957 a bbc news program called panorama pranked its viewers for april fools with a video report that trees flowering in Eton, Switzerland and Italy in springtime were growing spaghetti noodles. <laughs> the broadcaster Richard Dimbley went into painstaking detail about how each of the noodles each year would grow to the exact same length due to the hard work and the harvesting techniques of these spaghetti farmers. <laughs> it is so delightful to watch because it's all black and white it's and it's narrated with the seriousness of a proper newscast and some viewers even called in to ask where they could procure this spaghetti bush oh, but wow. my favorite bit in this is a line from the bbc archive report which says but some viewers failed to see the funny side of the broadcast and criticized the bbc for airing the item on what is supposed to be a serious factual program So the jokes about Twitter and outrage just write themselves. <laughs> I think this is the goal of journalism. Let's go back to these days. This is what we should do. <laughs> and that was our show this week. Thank you so much for joining us on Press Decode. You can catch us every Thursday on the IVM Podcasts Network. And guys, please remember: don't let the news give you the blues.